So, uh, uncertainty. But of course, there's nothing special about our times in that respect. And never mind death and taxes. The only certainty is uncertainty. And there's no more uncertainty now in any sort of sensible sense of thing than there ever has been. Um, but we can, with some justification, feel that events over the last <coughs> three or four years have given us good reason to wonder whether our ability to manage that uncertainty, and certainty that's always there, is as robust as we thought before. We do have techniques for managing uncertainty. They're embedded in many of our institutions, uh, embedded in the way that corporations work, and the way that markets are assessed, and so on. But uh, the, uh, the, the, the question is whether these techniques have just been good because we happen to have gone through a phase in which the techniques were appropriate to the phase we are in, but are not robust with respect to how things are going to change and develop in the future, or whether there's some, some sort of wisdom embedded in it which will help us negotiate our way through these periods of crisis. What I want to do tonight uh, is pose that question by telling you a little bit about the history of you know, where our techniques for managing uncertainty have come from, what sort of thinking underlies it, what sort of concepts underlies it, pose the question uh, you know, for the prosecution, as it were, the prosecution's case against those techniques, so you know, try and distill out where their limitations seem to be, and then you know, do some kind of evaluation at the end of, the, of that case, and, and see whether there's a way of answering it. So that's the plan of attack. Um, I'll start off by saying a little something about what uncertainty is and why it's important to us. It's clearly, uncertainty is ubiquitous. Um, we, it's, in fact, it's such an intimate part of our life that it's, sometimes it's very difficult to describe exactly what it is, so that's perhaps a good place to start. Um, so what is uncertainty? Well, uh, for most of us, I think it's largely uh, a state of mind or a, uh, a state of judgment, if you like, more generally, but simply a result of lack of information. We don't know whether the trains are going to run on time. We don't know whether uh, we'll be up to scratch in the examination. We don't know whether um, uh, the, the play that we want to see is still running. These, these are sort of uncertainties that we face all the time that are just about lack of information. If we can get more information, that certainty will go away. And actually, uh, uh, that's, there's enough uncertainty already in there for us to to have a topic that's worth, worth talking about for, for an hour and a half. But there are um, also uncertainties uh, that seem to be much deeper in the sense that they're embedded into the, the nature of, of the world or as nature as we understand it, at least according to bits of scientific theory that I have only a very hazy grasp on, but I understand the basic message of this is that the quantum mechanical description of the world implies that there are this uncertainty right down at the very fundamental level about the way that nature works, um, which percolates up to some degree or another to the decisions that we have to make. Well, and then there's all sorts of stuff that's in between um, and which I think are largely responsible for the sorts of, uh, uh, let's say, dramatic uncertainties that we've faced recently. Um, this is kind of uncertainty that derives not from the fact that we're dealing with a nature that's fundamentally indeterminate, but that it's natural systems like the climate, like, um, um, uh, like the development of, of viruses and so on, where 
Um, the system itself is what's is sort of a chaotic system. Um, the equations driving it are, are nonlinear, which means that very small changes in, um, in, in, in the initial states of the system lead to dramatically different uh, results at the end of it. And because our ability to measure initial states of the system is so rough, so limited, so this, this part of it is just uh, uh, derives from the limitations of us as human beings, um, we can't get enough accuracy on the initial conditions to really say anything of any interest about what the future will look like beyond you know, two or three weeks, or two, I mean, depending on the system. We can't tell anything about the long run. And this is certainly true um, of the climate. So one of the, the big challenges that we've uh, talked about, recent events of the last few years, making us wonder whether our ability to manage uncertainty uh, uh, really is as robust as we think. Uh, one of the good examples of this is, is our growing awareness of the effect of human activity on the climate. Um, we know, <laughs> science tells us pretty solidly that the climate is changing. We know what the direction tra of travel of that change is globally. But we have very, very little idea of what will happen in, say, 15 years' time in London to you know, temperatures to any degree of accuracy. So we have very, very little specific local knowledge that's you know, long, medium to long term. And in the absence of that, it's, it's very, very difficult to know how to plan responses. Should we be taking dramatic, expensive measures? Should we just be just sort of <coughs> sitting tight and holding for the best? Will our interventions make things go worse? Because we really don't have the ability to get a proper grip on what the, what the, how that system will unravel in any kind of detail. So to all intents and purposes, even though you know, it may be that there's nothing intrinsically indeterminate about the way in which the climate will evolve. From our perspective, we really have no ability, and will have no ability in the short term, to predict with any degree of accuracy what's going to happen. And we, that's the world as we find it. And this, it's true for some of the other areas that uh, have seen dramatic events. Uh, the, the big financial meltdown a couple of years ago was, was another example of this inability. We, you, know, we, you can tell in gross that markets don't always go up, they must come down at some point, but we are almost totally incapable of predicting with any degree of accuracy when markets will come down. We know, that we know what sort of factors. I think almost anybody could have said you know, at the beginning of the 21st century that uh, you know, property prices couldn't just rise indefinitely, but nobody had the slightest idea when it, when it would crash. And it's those sort of limitations which make it very difficult for us to manage the uncertainties surrounding these things. Okay, so different sources of uncertainty, but I think the one that really matters to us is our inability to generate the information that we need in order to uh, make predictions upon which our decisions are, need to be based. That's the uncertainty that really matters to us. Well, how does it matter? Why does it matter to us? Uh, in a way, this is obvious. Let me just make the point nonetheless. Um, our actions have different consequences for, in all sorts of different dimensions. I mean, they have different consequences for different people. Um, you know, if I serve uh, fish and chips for dinner rather than uh, the vegetarian lasagna, one of, the children, one of my children will be unhappy, the other one will be very happy. When I decide what to cook for dinner, I have to weigh these things up. So, I mean, the fact that my, that my actions have consequences for different people means I have to do some weighing. Same is true across different times. P 
party tonight, suffer tomorrow. I need to weigh up the good times tonight against the suffering tomorrow. Some sort of weighing has got to go on. Well, um, do I have a barbecue? Could That has certain consequences if the world tomorrow is a rainy world. has other consequences if the world tomorrow is a sunny, <coughs> a sunny world. I need to give appropriate weight to the consequences associated with sunny weather and the consequences associated with rainy weather, just as I need to give appropriate weight to my two children's interests, the consequences for each of them. What kind of weight do I need to give them? Well, in a weight that is somehow calibrated by how sure I am, how certain I am that tomorrow will be rainy or sunny. So my certainty is, in a sense, a weight on my decision-making that allows me to give appropriate appropriate. Uh, balance or give an appropriate weight, should say, to consequences in the decisions that I take. So, and you'll see how this this, this issue about giving appropriate weight um, comes up more formally when we look at this, the techniques that have been developed for dealing with uncertainty. Okay. Well, as I said, the the the, the, the development of uh, techniques for managing uncertainty are more or less coextensive in their history with the development of the notion of probability. And uh, uh, probability is not such an old notion. Uh, it's the basic laws of probability really go back to uh, an exchange between uh, these two mathematicians, Blaise Pascal and Pierre Fermat, uh, in uh, the, the, the 17th century. So the, the, the exchange between them was kicked off, apparently, by um, some questions posed to Pascal by a gambling a friend of his, Chevalier de Meret, who wanted to know, you know, uh, and in, in particular, if uh, he wants to know in general what sort of stakes he should accept, what sort of money he should put down on, on when he was offered gambles, but also how these stakes should be divided up in the event that a gambler was interrupted, possibly by the authorities. I'm not sure what he was worried about. <laughs> um, so probability matters. Uh, because, uh, in a sense, probability is just the opposite of uncertainty. Rather, probability is uh, our measure, the measure that we have on the uncertainty. How probable something is, is just the opposite of how uncertain we are about it. But in its initial development, um, uh, with the initial development of the laws of probability and chance, uh, people, it was developed within this rather... Uh, very specific and narrow forum is concerned with gambling problems right? and, and not with uncertainty in any kind of general sense. But in the course of thinking about these gambling problems, Pascal and Fermat uh, developed what we now understand to be formal probability theory. Um, the basic message that came out of this discussion uh, was that uh, when you gamble, what you should try and do is gamble in such a way as to maximize the amount of money you make. Well, um, you don't always know in advance how much money you're going to make, so what you should try and maximize is your expected monetary gain in a gamble. Right? So that was the sort of basic principle for managing the uncertainty that you face as a gambler. You don't know whether the dice is going to land six or five or four or whatever. So how much money should you put down on the roll of the dice? Well, you should work out how much money you can expect to win gambling on one of these outcomes. That's the basic insight of this. Well, so that was for gambling. And Pascal, of course, was a, 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 brilliant, a brilliant thinker. He was not just a mathematician. He was a philosopher, a physicist, various other things. And, and Pascal very soon saw bigger things for this principle um, 
and, and took this line of thinking right out of the sphere of gambling and into the sphere of theology uh, 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 and argued that we can settle even very, very fundamental questions like the question of whether we should believe in God by thinking about it in very much the same kind of ways in which we think about whether we should accept a bet on the dice rolling six or not. Um, so here's, here's from Pascal's Pensée. Uh, he said, let us weigh the gain and the loss in wagering that God is. Our problem is, should we bet on, should we bet on God or not? Um, and we, 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 must, we have to decide whether to bet on God because that will settle the question of whether we should adopt the belief that he is or not. Okay. Well, um, you'll see now the kind of connection with the gambling. Let us estimate these two chances. If you gain, you gain all. If you lose, you lose nothing. Wager, then, without hesitation that he is. There is here an infinity of infinitely happy life to gain, a chance of gain against a finite number of chances of loss, and what you stake is finite. So, and the basic thought here is, in amongst this florid close, is that uh, there are two possible uh, conditions that the world might be in. One is that God exists, and the other is that God doesn't exist, and we're uncertain as to which is which. And uh, Pascal argues it doesn't matter, I mean, in the full development of the argument, it doesn't matter too much initially whether you think that uh, God's existence is probable or not. Uh, if you think about what you stand to gain or lose, depending on these things, you'll, you, you'll draw your conclusions very quickly. And basically, if God exists and you believe in him, then you stand to gain a lot. Um, if he doesn't exist, well, small loss in life. Spend a bit of time in church. Could have been doing some other things, but, you know, not too bad. On the other hand, if you don't believe in him, and he does exist, very, very bad. <laughs> very, very bad for a very, very long time. <laughs> well, and if you don't believe, and he doesn't exist, you get to have a bit more free time. A couple more beers in the pub. Oh, so it's clear. It's clear whether or not it's probable that he exists or not, you should believe in God's existence because the expected gain, it's not an expected monetary gain anymore, but the expected gain from belief massively outweighs the expected gain from not belief. So that was Pascal's argument. And actually the first, I believe, use of decision theory to settle a problem of uncertainty of this kind. And it's actually a terrible argument. Very, very poor argument by modern standards. So at, at the end of the talk, I'll ask you to tell me why it's a very bad argument. <laughs> it's sort of tempting, but it's a very bad argument. Nonetheless, it was one of the first and significant ones. But it's a kind of, it's a little bit of a cul-de-sac in the development of probability theory because, as I say, most, most of the sort of, let's say, less broad-minded or the less uh, high-minded thinkers of the time were still in sort of gambling mode about these things. And it wasn't Pascal's wager that cause them to shift their thinking. But a little paradox um, known as, as the St. Petersburg Paradox. Um, and the St. Petersburg Paradox is, uh, the, is the following thing. Suppose you have a coin that is going to be tossed repeatedly. And uh, the coin can either come up heads or tails. And you're going to be paid out a sum of money uh, when... A tail, when a tail is finally tossed, and how much you're going to be paid out depends on how many heads are tossed before a tail is tossed. Okay? And the basic idea is that 
you, what you will be paid is 2 to the n, where n is the number of heads that you tossed before you get a tails. Okay, so if it's 0, you just get 1 dollar, you know, whatever it is, it's 2. To, if it's 2 to the, if it's 1 head, you get 2 to the 1, so it's 2. If it's 2 heads followed by tails, you get 4, and so on. So you can see this thing rises exponentially. And, uh, in fact, the expected monetary value of this particular gamble, St. Petersburg gamble, if you like, is infinite. It's an n. It just keeps on going up. Well, if its expected monetary value is infinite, you should be willing to pay almost any sum of money to, pl to play this game. But it was well recognized at the time that, in fact, people were unwilling to pay much more than $20. <laughs> I mean, something in that order to play this game, which is a long, long way away from an infinite amount of money. Um, so that was the paradox. So the, 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 the theory of how to manage gambling situations told you maximize expected monetary value, but it was clear that people not only wouldn't maximize expected monetary value in games like this, but really uh, there's a strong sense that they would be a bit crazy to bet unlimited sums of money on this thing. And Daniel Bernoulli, in thinking about this problem, uh, suggested that the solution was to shift attention away from monetary value to some kind of much more general notion of value, which he called, uh, well, he didn't call it utility, he called it something in Latin, which I can't pronounce, so I won't, but which we today call utility. And the idea of utility is it's a very generic notion of value. It's whatever it is that we're really after. We're after money not because we like to hold bits of coins or pieces of paper in our hands, but because we can spend that money on things that we like to do. We like to, you know, we want to get something out of life. Whatever, that's, whatever that something is that we want to get out of life, and maybe for ourselves and for others, that's utility. <coughs> and so when you gamble, Bernoulli suggested, what you should be after is maximization of expected utility, not a maximization of expected benefit. And as the amount of money you receive goes up, he hypothesized, you care less and less. And that's why you don't care that the St. Petersburg game pays off an infinite amount of money, because once you've won 100,000, or maybe it has to be half a million, or maybe for some of you it has to be five million, but at some point you really kind of, you've got enough money. Um, so you don't really <coughs> attach much significance to gains beyond a certain point. And so you're not going to pay an infinite amount of money to pay this game. That was the, the big leap, because in the invention of this notion of utility, Bernoulli made it possible, or kickstart, he made it possible to take this theory uh, of how to handle uncertainty that was designed for a very specific domain of life, this gambling, which is a small part of life, and extend it to everything. Because we no longer have to, no longer have to, <coughs> confine this principle just to cases where actions have monetary consequences, we can use this principle for any kind of action, with any kind of consequence, so long as we can estimate the utility of these consequences. Be these consequences sharing a bowl of lasagna, having a barbecue, you know, watching the sunset. These are all consequences that, as long as we can attach some utility to them, we can use this principle of maximization of expected benefit. And so... Um, life can be treated as a gamble and managed accordingly. That was Bernoulli's big move. Well, the modern theory is Bernoulli's theory 
cleaned up a little bit with some um, foundations put in, some fancy mathematics added to it. And it's really down to three people who all managed to look remarkably like um, nerdy academics, uh, to put a finer point on it, um, but who are, I mean, collectively, I think, it's, you, know, you wouldn't want to meet three of those in the room at the same time and get into an argument, I think. Uh, so Frank Ramsey was a, a philosopher, economist, I mean, mathematician, polymath in uh, Cambridge, beginning of the 20th century, tragically died very young, um, uh, late, I mean, late 20s, I can't remember exact age. Um, John von Neumann, who is, uh, I mean, this was his, his work in, in this area is just a very, very small part of his enormous contribution to science. He's, he's the one, per, I mean, he, one of the people who you know, famously more or less invented the modern computer, and the joke is always that he was the only person in the room who didn't really need one, but nonetheless got around to inventing one. Um, and Leonard Savage. So Leonard Savage was an American statistician, published a very famous book in 1954 called Foundation Statistics. Um, that is really the cornerstone of the modern theory of uncertainty and how, to, how it figures in decision-making and how we should manage it. So I, I want to describe very quickly Savage's theory to you and then make the objections to it because if we can sort of isolate the part of Savage's theory that is controversial here, then we can get a handle on what's at stake in so this may be very familiar to a lot of you, but I'll just go through it anyway. Um, the basis of Savage's theory is this thing that he called the sure thing principle. And it's a very, very attractive and plausible principle. So here's a little story that, that Savage tells in order to uh, motivate it, and it's a rather topical story, because um, the uncertainty is still extreme about whether the state of the world is one in which the Democrat wins or one in which the Republican wins although somebody may know. Anyway, um, Savage tells the story of you, you're, you're a businessman, you want to decide whether, and this is slightly embarrassing to the story, you want to decide whether to buy property or whether to invest in the stock market, and you decide that uh, you, you should think about this question in connection with who's going to win the next election, um, because this will have a big impact on the success of your investments. Well, if the Democrat wins, you reason... Um, it's not really going to make any difference because uh, you know, taxes are going to go up. Both of your investments are going to do pretty lousy. So no profit either way. That way, this is not a political statement. Story, right? Um, uh, on the other hand, if the Republican wins, well, if you invest in property, you're almost certain, or let's say certain, to make a moderate property profit out of your investment. But if you invest in the stock market, well... There's a large potential profit, but a very high risk. You could lose everything as well. Okay, so I don't know what any of you would do if you had a choice like this or what one should do. In fact, the choice is unspecified. But what um, Savage points out is that whatever it is that you should decide to do, you should make a decision on the basis of what happens when the Republican wins. Because with the Democrat wins, it really makes no difference what you did. So you can ignore this possibility. So in very, very simple cases like this, where it makes no difference what you do under some circumstances, you can reduce the, you can reduce the complexity of making decisions under uncertainty by ignoring some things. It makes life a lot easier for you because you just simply ignore that and think about whether you prefer a guaranteed moderate profit to a large potential profit at high risk. Simplifies the decision. 
And that's the core principle of Savage's theory, but it allows him to, uh, sorry, this is just, it allows him to uh, draw very general conclusions. So, a little bit more abstractly, the principle is that if you've got two actions, A and B here, two events, E and not E, and, uh, uh, sorry, so, very simple principle, but on that very simple, very simple principle, we're able to build a very elaborate theory. So I'm going to just quickly sketch out what that theory is, give you an example, and then we can move to the objections. So here's what Savage's, what the consequences of that little principle are. And it's quite remarkable how rich the consequences are of such a simple principle. So Savage tells us that if we face an action with identifiable consequences, but different ones, in different events, events might be rainy weather, sunny weather, or whatever, then the way to work out how valuable that action is, is simply to look at it event by event. That's really what the principle before us was telling us to do. Look at things event by event um, and work as follows. So I want to work out here, I'm working out here the expected utility of the action A. And I do that by thinking about the utility of consequence C, whatever this consequence is, and weighting it, putting a weight on it that, that is the probability that the event is the true event. Okay? And then I do the same for the not E event. Right, I just add up, I just add the utility that I get from the consequence D here and weight that by the probability that not E is the true state of the world. Okay? And that gives me a number which I'm going to call the expected utility of that action A. And I do exactly the same for action B. I don't know whether I've got that down. No, I haven't. And then I compare. I pick the act with the highest expected utility. All right? So, so long as when we're trying to make up our minds about things, we can arrange things in, a way, in, in this kind of way. We can sort of arrange it so that we've got clear in our minds what the possible states of the world are, what consequences follow from our actions in each of those states of the world. Then we can apply this principle to give us a grading of the actions that we face, a grading in terms of expected utility, and we use that grading then to make our choices. All right, so just to, so at the risk of laboring the point, take a very simple example where we're uh, trying to decide whether to take a bus and the traffic could be light or heavy. Um, if, if we take the bus in heavy traffic, we risk arriving late and paying for a ticket. If traffic is light, we will pay for the ticket, but we arrive nice and early so we can collect our thoughts. On the other hand, walking guaranteed to arrive on time. So then, do we walk or take the bus? Think about how valuable it is to us, how important it is to us to arrive early versus arriving late, how costly it is to us to have to pay for the ticket. And we weigh that up by the probability that the traffic is, is heavy or late. Uh, sorry, is light, light, heavy or light. And that will give us the expected utility for taking the bus. And then we just compare that, in this case, to the simple consequence of arriving on time. And in principle, we can do this for much, much more complicated problems. But that, in a nutshell, is, is the modern <coughs> theory bequeathed to us by Savage on how to deal, how to make decisions under situations of uncertainty. So you see here the crucial thing about this technique is that we are able to assign, evaluate consequences in one kind of way, that's the utility that we attach to, and that we're able to assess the uncertainty that we face by putting a probability on the events, possible events. That's the crucial thing about this technique for managing uncertainty. Well, not long after Savage um, presented this work, and I mean, this, oh, as I said, Savage's theory is now essentially the, the mainstream. That's what we, we use. Uh, in all walks of life, 
in fancy mathematical form, in much less fancy mathematical form, so forth. But actually, from very early on, there were objections to Savage's theory. And one of the most powerful ones is contained, was uh, presented by a guy called Daniel Ellsberg, who later became very famous for leaking the Pentagon Papers. Um, uh, but in fact, before he did the leaking, uh, wrote a dissertation on Savage's work in which he presented this paradox. So I'd like to present this paradox to you and actually get you to... Um, I'm going to treat you as experimental subjects for the purposes of this thing, and we'll see whether we get the same result as, as Ellsberg. That's uh, never failed me in the past, but there's always a first time. That's the nature of it. Um, so, Ellsberg asked you to imagine the following situation. There is an urn containing balls of three colours, and there are 90 balls inside the urn. Okay? And we know that of those 90 balls, 30 are red. The rest are either black or yellow, but we don't know how many of each. Here is the monetary payoffs for two lotteries, two lottery tickets. You must choose whether you want to have lottery ticket A or lottery ticket B. Lottery ticket A pays you 100 pounds, euros, dollars, whatever you deal in, carry shells, if a red ball is, is drawn. And remember, there are 30 red balls. Okay. Lottery B pays you 100 pounds, whatever, if a black ball is drawn. And remember, this, the black ball, all we know is that there are 60 that are black or yellow. Right? Okay? So, make your choices. Think about which one of these you would choose if that was the decision problem that you faced. There's no right answer here, so <laughs> don't, uh, don't feel stressed by the... There's no right answer to these questions in isolation. <laughs> anyway. All right? All made your choices? Anybody needs more time? No? Okay, good. All right. So, uh, second problem. Just like the first, but with slightly different parts. I don't know whether everybody can see this. It's unfortunately rather low. I'll read it out and hopefully this will look at it. So, same urn. We're still going to draw a ball from the urn. But this time we've got two lotteries, C and D, which pay out slightly differently to A and B. Lottery C pays out if a red ball is drawn or if a yellow ball is drawn. On the other hand, lottery D here pays out if either a black or a yellow ball is drawn. Okay. Same proportions of balls, still know the same thing, 30 red, 60 black or yellow. Make your choices, please. Okay. So, if you were savage, let's see what savage would say. Well, actually, let's not say. Let's let's let me get people's answers first. So, uh, there are four possible patterns of choices that you could have made. You could have chosen A and C, or B and C, or A and D, or B and D. All right, those are the pairs. So, can I ask how many people chose A and C? Okay. Something like that. How many chose A and D? Oh, I love it. <laughs> Every time. <laughs> the majority. I don't, and we can stop there. Let's not stop there. Let's just finish off. How many chose B and C? No. Zero. Oh, it's getting better. Okay. And uh, what do we need? B and D. Okay. Finish again. 
So, um, according to Savage's theory, and in particular according to the sure thing, thing principle, there are only two rational possibilities here. There's A and C, or B and D. Every other, and in particular the one the majority of you chose, uh, is irrational. Let me show you why. All right. Uh, look at the yellow column. In both cases, start over here, we see that it's the same outcome. Whether you, pay, whether you choose A or B, you get the same outcome. Also down here, whether you choose C or D, you get the same outcome. So, no difference, so we can just forget about this. What the sure thing principle told us, and we, I hope, agreed it was a very reasonable principle. Okay, well, if we can forget about that, look at what's left. And I hope you'll notice something immediately, namely that if we concentrate only on what's left, A and C are the same thing. And B and D are the same thing. In other words, once you've crossed off this column, you face the same decision problem twice over. So if you chose A and then D, you were inconsistent. Chose one way, and then two minutes later, perhaps less, you chose exactly the other way. Okay. So that's about that's inconsistency. I don't know. Do so. Let's see. I mean, those who who chose, and as many of you did, A and D. Do you have a, an explanation of why you chose that way? Does anyone sort of object to the charge of irrationality? Okay. Okay. So, so you liked A because you knew you knew how many red balls there were, yeah. and down here you liked D because you you knew how many black or yellow. There were. Okay. So, is that is that the idea? That was down here you you liked D because. Oh, no, no, sorry. I chose A and C. Oh, you chose A and C. So well, you're a rational person. I don't, I don't want to hear from rational. People. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm yeah. So, yeah, good. So, I, 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 these sort of responses are the responses that people very often give in situations like this. And so, the more people think about it, the more they sort of start to think, well, wait a minute, this isn't irrational. So this, I'm starting to convince myself that this is a reasonable way of thinking about things. And, you know, why shouldn't I 
feel a little bit more solid about this choice because at least I know what I'm getting into. I don't know what I'm getting into here. I might be getting in. I might be getting a ticket which is rigged against me somehow. I mean, I should say aside suspicions, but even with that, you know, even if you you don't distrust the person selling you the ticket, you might think, I really don't know what I'm getting myself into with this ticket, but I know what I'm getting myself into here. But it's reversed here, of course, because in this case, in Lottery D, you know, well, 60 balls are going to, precisely 60 balls are going to deliver me the money, and I just don't know how many of those balls are going to deliver me money in Lottery C. So that's a sort of line of thinking that people have in response to this. And, and Ellsberg, that was Ellsberg's diagnosis as well. Ellsberg argued that people are averse to what he called ambiguity. And by this he meant people don't like to bet on things where they don't have any probabilistic information about the contingencies that matter, the things that are determining the consequences. And uh, I mean, this is undoubtedly a case like that because we, just, we have no idea how many black or yellow Well, okay, so that's just a nice toy example, but uh, other people have argued um, that this phenomenon is actually widespread. That um, the absence of probabilistic information is, in fact, a very widespread feature of the world as we find it. So this is Keynes. Um, Keynes not as an economist, but Keynes as a, prob- as a probability theorist, in a sense. I mean, although the two are very closely related. Keynes argued in a, in a language is slightly difficult to decipher, but I hope the background is made clear, that there was a difference between risk, mere risk, and true uncertainty. And what he meant by that is that risk was a situation in which you know what the probabilities are. That's the gambling situation. You've got a dice, six sides, equal chance. You know what the risks are. But in the real world, there's uncertainty. So I'll just read the quotes. By uncertain knowledge, let me explain. I do not mean merely to distinguish what is known for certain from what is only probable. The game of roulette is not subject in this sense to uncertainty. So gambling is not about uncertainty. Even the weather, he says, is only moderately uncertain. But I think he was badly wrong about that. Um, uh, The sense in which I'm using the term is that in which the prospect of European war is uncertain, or the price of copper. And about these matters, there is no scientific basis on which to form any calculable probability, whatever. We simply do not know. So that's the Keynesian diagnosis. I mean, in a nutshell, the Keynesian diagnosis, the one that's been picked up by others, of the apparent breakdown in our ability to manage the uncertainties that we face in the economy, the uncertainties that passe. Keynes that we face in dealing with climate change, that we face in preparing for new diseases is that we have no scientific basis whatever to form calculable probabilities. And to think otherwise is, is hubris. That's the Keynesian diagnosis. And, uh, Keynes managed to lose a lot of money proving this was true. At times he made money too, but he also managed to lose a lot of money convincing himself of this fact. Because for a while he bet on things like the price of copper. Um, and he had to get a job, and it was all the best for us as a result. Um, so, but maybe so that's uh, the, the Keynesian view of the problem. And I think that Keynes has put his finger on what is essentially the main challenge facing uh, uh, facing us with regard to managing uncertainty: is this lack of scientific basis for forming probability judgment. But actually, it, it's deeper than that. Um, one thing 
I mean, what Keynes was worried about was our inability to assign probabilities or to have any basis on which to assign probabilities. But actually, um, there are more things that we're uncertain about once we start thinking about these things. Uh, we also often don't know what value to assign to the outcomes. So it's not just our probability judgments, but even our, but our utility judgments too can be radically uncertain in a, in a different kind of way. So it's the kind of uncertainty that you face when, for instance, you face a conflict between uh, obligations to your friends and obligations to your family. You might have equally... Well, I mean, equally is the wrong word, it implies the parable. You have obligations to both, but they're in conflict, and you don't know how to resolve them. You just don't know which is more important to you, or more important full stop. Or you might be thinking again about the climate change case. You might be wondering about how to weigh up um, you know, losses to potential future populations, which may or may not come into existence, depending on what we do now, against what will happen to populations that currently exist. We just may not have any idea how to compare these things. How do we compare non-existent people and the costs and benefits to them, or potentially non-existent people, against the current generation? just don't know how to do that. We have no good moral theories to deal with. Um, we sometimes don't know what our options are. I'm calling that option uncertainty. It's all very well saying, you know, draw up yourself a nice table, think about the consequences of each action. We don't always know what actions we have available to us. Um, that's the kind of uncertainty that we face over t- in connection with technological development. And actually, the possibility of new technologies and the impact of those new technologies is perhaps one of the most fundamental sources of the severe uncertainty that we face. Anybody who has an iPad now will know, you know what I mean about intrinsic unpredictability. You know, nobody ten years ago would have predicted the general usage of devices. Um, so, you know, we may have options like the iPad available to us now, but we have no idea that we have those options. No. Even more radically, we may be simply unaware of possible states of the world. It's not a question of being unable to judge how probable they are, but we may simply be unaware that they exist. I mean, on a very small scale, you may be thinking about where to eat tonight, and you just don't know that certain restaurants are in the neighborhood. But... If you, can't, if you don't know about the existence of these things, you don't know how to represent the problem. So that's a, the problem of radical uncertainty. And these, these sources of uncertainty are ones for which our tools are not designed. The, the tools that we inherited from the theory of gambling were not designed to deal with this kind of uncertainty. <coughs> so what do we do about it? This is, in the last ten minutes, I'll tell you what I think we should do about it. Uh, last five minutes. Um, let me first tell you what Keynes thought we should do about it. Because it's quite funny in a way. Keynes' solution was, in a sense, pretend there isn't a problem. Because what else can we do? At least that's how I read this quote. I'll read it to you. <laughs> Nevertheless, he says, this is after telling us about severe the necessity for action and for decision compels us as practical men to do our best to overlook this awkward fact. <coughs> the awkward fact being the fact that we have no idea what probabilities to assign things. <laughs> and to behave exactly as we should if we had behind us a good bentonite calculation of a series of prospective advantages and disadvantages, each multiplied by its appropriate probability, waiting to be summed. That's, that's just the calculation of it. The Bentamite calculation. This is actually in general theory of employment, interest in money. So, I, I mean, what Keynes seems to be saying here is literally, there is no solution to it, so let's pretend there isn't a problem and continue as before. Um, 
It's a little unfair to Keynes. And actually, I think there is a way of making some sense of what he's saying here. I'll try and bring that out in a second. But clearly, as a general strategy, I think it's not a very good one. We must be able to do a little bit better than that. Perhaps not a lot better, but a little bit better than that. Well, I think the first thing we can do is acknowledge our uncertainty. It's the most simple observation, but in a way it's the most important one. That's contra Keynes. Because... um, you get into big, big trouble when you go around pretending that you know what risks you face. And that's what happened in the financial markets. Lots of people pretended that they knew what risks they were facing and went through the motions of hedging against it, making their bets in accordance with calculations they performed. But they didn't really have the slightest idea. But they pretended that they did because somebody was paying them fees and you know, your professional position is dependent on something. You all understand why we do these things. But it's, it's not a good strategy. All right, what do we mean by acknowledge uncertainty? Well, concretely, we can, do, we can do a bit more than what Keynes was alluding to. Our situation is not as bad as Keynes was alluding to. But usually we have some basis for constraining probabilities. I mean, it's not that we have no basis at all. We have some basis, not just a complete basis for constraining probabilities. But if we have some basis then we can represent our uncertainty not by a single probability function, but by a set of them. In a way, you can think of these sets of probabilities as something like all the reasonable probability judgments I can make about events, given the information that I hold. So the fact that we can't make determined probability assignments doesn't mean that we have nothing at all. In particular, I think this device, many people have suggested that working on at the moment, of thinking about uncertainty is captured by sets of probabilities rather than single probabilities is a useful one because then we can ask, what should we do with these sets? How do we use them to make decisions? How do we change our mind about these things? Okay. And give us a way of not just acknowledging our uncertainty but representing it. <coughs> the second thing that I want to suggest in this is that it's important to separate two different tasks. One task is making up our mind or forming our opinion about things and another task is, is making a decision. And in a way, these two tasks are different imperatives. When, we try to, when, we, when we're forming opinions, we should keep an open mind as possible. So, I mean, the general idea is you form opinions through inquiries, through talking to other people, through making investigations, empirical research, and that, keeping as open a mind as possible. Don't shut anything down. The evidence may be pointing one way. It doesn't mean you should ignore the possibility that things are in the other way. On the other hand, when you make decisions, you have to settle on an opinion. Open mind when doing your inquiries. Close your mind when you have to make a decision. Because at some point, you know, time's up. And this is the point at which I think Keynes, in a sense, is right. When you you make a decision, you, you can't do any better than just making up your mind about what weight to assign to. You don't have a scientific basis for doing so, but you can look for features of the situation, maybe symmetries, arguments one way or another, that allow you to settle on some assignment of probability, some assignment of utility for making decisions, for the purposes of making the decision, the particular decision you're making. So maybe an analogy would help here. Think about groups of people. Now, in any sort of reasonably democratic group decision-making mechanism... Different individuals can have different opinions. 
And we shouldn't attempt to shut down that difference in opinion. People can discuss, they can change their mind and so on, try and form some sort of consensus, but we should do nothing to try and shut down those differences of opinion. Differences of opinion are good in the process of inquiry. But at some point, groups have to make decisions. And when they make decisions, they've got to settle on something. Now, doesn't, the fact that they've got to settle on something doesn't mean that there will be a scientific basis for doing so. But it does mean that from even given that diversity of opinion, it needs to be brought together in some way. And so, now, there are techniques for doing so. You can take votes. You can lock yourself into a room and persuade your, your opponents. You can exhaust your opponents into agreeing that you're right. There are all sorts of things you can do. But don't confuse the judgment that you settle on as a group for making up your mind now with some kind of collective belief that <coughs> is held henceforth. Those two should coexist and be kept separate. That's, and my argument is that this is the same for individuals. Individuals have to keep these two aspects of themselves. They're inquiring self and they're deciding self separate so that they can both keep an open mind and settle on decisions. All right, what... What about making decisions? As I say, you've got to settle on something. What sort of criteria can we use in settling on decisions? I'm not going to pretend that we will always have a knockdown case in favour of one thing or another, but there are things that we can look for in helping us. One thing we should do is try and formulate the alternatives we face so as to use what information we have. I mean, this may seem obvious in a kind of way, but if you, 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 you shouldn't try and overplan if you don't have any information which will help you uh, to settle on one So you should choose your alternatives roughly you know, in accordance with what information you have. So if you don't know, um, you, know you, might, you might have sort of good information about whether you know, southern France or northern Italy are the place that you want to holiday in because you've got some experience with those things. But you have no idea which hotel you want to stay at. Don't formulate your alternatives in terms of the hotel that you're going to stay at in holiday. Think first about where you're going to holiday and wait till later to settle the other things. Just decide on the basis of the information that you have at the time. Um, second thing, don't just think in terms of expected losses and benefits, but also, as we saw in the Ellsberg thing, take into account how much how spread out these are. So the thing about actions which have consequences that are very spread out depending on what the world state of the world is, is that you could be in for a very nasty shock, possibly. Of course, things could go very well as well. But you need to explicitly take into account that spread, not just the expectation. Thirdly, these are sort of just random thoughts. They're not very well linked together. They're just ideas that you can use to settle on. Give preference to robust decisions. And by robust decisions, I mean ones which um, will stand up even if things turn out to be different to what you expected. So if you're given a choice between an action that looks really, really, really good, just as long as things are exactly like this, against an action that's sort of okay, but it's going to stay sort of okay no matter what happens. You know, ceteris paribus, go for the one that's robust, because then you know, your ignorance, is, your, your, your uncertainty is no hindrance to plan. And finally, maximize flexibility. Uh, and that's a bit, I mean, this is closely connected to the issue about formulating alternatives. Don't make up your mind when you don't have to. Only settle on the things that have to be settled, and if necessary, put it off. Procrastinate. <laughs> I do. 
a lot. But there's no point in settling everything in advance. I, I, you know, I realize for some people that's psychologically impossible, but to the extent that it is psychologically possible, put off the things that don't need it. Because you want to keep your mind as open as, for as long as possible, giving time for, to accumulate information. All right, will that get us out of trouble? Certainly not. I mean, it's the nature of uncertainty that every rule that I put forward will have its, you know, will be, you know, will be overturned by some surprises. But nonetheless, I think the combination of acknowledging uncertainty, separating opinion formation from settling on a decision, and opening up the space of possible criteria for making decisions, which emphasizes robustness and flexibility in these kind of things, gives us a broader set of tools for managing uncertainty than we are currently committed to. That's all I have to say on that. are not easy for us to handle. Things can get very complicated. Uh, if we can you know, assign the right numbers to the events that we face, then why not use computers to calculate advantages and disadvantages and so on? It's much less... And there are clearly risks to computerization when what you face is, is real uncertainty in the Keynesian sense. Um, because there's a temptation, and I'm sure everybody here has seen this temptation, to to work with what you can quantify because you can use a computer to solve the problem uh, rather than to pay attention to the things that you can't quantify because you can't get any help with it. Amen. Yeah, yeah. So I think, I, well, I, I think you, you the, the, your question uh, already acknowledged that risk and I think I, I wholeheartedly share that view. You've got to be very, very careful of this desire to focus on the things that we know we can manage. 
close our eyes to the things that we're not sure what to do about. Um, yeah, so on the second question, it's much more delicate. I mean, it seems, again, I think uh, it's important to kind of keep the, the opinion formation part of this process separate from the decision making. You shouldn't, I mean, the fact that, you know, first you work out whether somebody is at risk or not. And you don't want there to be any constraints, political or otherwise, on, that, on the process of making that judgment. What do you do about it once you've reached a conclusion? Then, you know, then I think it's a matter for debate whether there should be other, there should be other considerations, including political considerations and, you know, or political correctness or whatever it is, whether that should matter then in how that judgment feeds into the decision itself. So when you settle things, all sorts of things can come into settling the, on the decision. I really think when you're trying to, to reach a judgment, you want to keep it as open as possible. That means not excluding potential variables at all. Thanks. Yeah. Next question. Um, you, uh, thank you very much for that, by the way. Um, uh, Bradley, you, for, for much of your talk, you seem to be implying that, uh, that uh, uh, uncertainty bad, certainty good. Uh, I, I thought you started to stop on that towards the end there. And I, I would like to encourage you to go a bit, bit further and, and perhaps see some of the positives uh -huh. of, of uh, uncertainty. That certainty tends to be very sterile. It's in uncertainty that we see creativity. That uh, that I know a lot of. That certainty isn't the same as being correct. I know a lot of people who are very certain about things are rubbish. Um, <laughs> and, and, and if Newton had not been so uncertain, yeah. he would not be able to come up with uh, with with uh, with notions like gravity and. Uh, yeah, I think that's a very fair remark. I mean, I, I put it in the, ca the category of. I mean. Many of the problems that we face actually have, the fact of having to face those problems, have a beneficial effect on them. They stimulate us to do, to do creative things. It's not, so, I mean, the sense in which I'm talking about uncertainty as a problem, I'm talking about it as a problem much in the same way that sort of, you know, bad public health is a problem. Uh, you know, there are lots of other problems that we need But it isn't to say that our life would be sort of good if there were no problems of this kind. I, I don't think... You know, you're right, life without any uncertainty would be a sterile one. Let, let me add a, another dimension here where uncertainty is productive. Um, when we want to treat people fairly, it's often important that there should be some uncertainty in, in you know, who gets to benefit. So that's why we toss a coin. Which of my children gets the lollipop? There's only one lollipop. If I've already made up my mind, that seems very unfair. But if I allow it to depend on the toss of the coin, uh, you know, it, it seems fairer somehow. And then in that case, we use uncertainty, the fact that there's uncertainty, to, treat, it, to allow us to treat people fairly, with, you know, because we can't break the lollipop in half. So instead, we, we introduce un uncertainty to help us treat people fairly. So that it can be productive. I, I think I, I was wrong if I wanted to imply that it's nothing but a headache. Um, but even if it's beneficial, we need to know how to manage it. That's, I think that part is the only. Well, thanks very much for a very interesting discussion. Um, I thought it was uh, particularly fascinating. You started off by saying this is a very uncertain period compared to any other time in history. 
and, and sort of rounded discussions of uncertainty. And I wonder if there's an interesting ally question in how well we can judge how uncertain the state is. Yeah. Because all of the states that are mentioned are possibly, I mean, I'll give you the economic yeah. uncertainty now, but climate change, well, that's a big uncertainty, but in the past there's been the possibility of nuclear war, or yeah. let's pay attention to World War II, yeah. an awful lot. <laughs> yeah. Actually, uh, 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 I said we, we, we might be entitled to think that so, so I don't think, I mean, I don't think there's any sort of sensible answer to the question, is our current age more uncertain than any other age? I think what's been notable about the last few years is just these, these events, which, I mean, you know when there's uncertainty, there are going to be these events from time to time. They just all sort of came to the front, which really reminded us of the, of the uncertainty that we face. That, in a sense, it's, you know, like death, you know, it's, you sort of, half of you know, knows that you don't think too hard about it until you see it. And then, by the same it is, but then, so do you know, you roll the dice and a certain number of times, eventually you're going to get the bit really, you know, you're going to get the big bad outcome. The, so we're, we've had a lot of those recently. And I suppose what I meant, mm. sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So given that we don't, given that we know that our current assessment of how uncertain the world is, isn't necessarily yeah. that compared to... You know, our, our assessments of uncertainty isn't necessarily reliable. Mm. How does that factor into all of these other questions? Because are we certain how much uncertainty there is? I know it begins to sound like we're going uncertain, but yeah. um, how, how can you manage something if you don't know yeah. what there is to manage? How can you acknowledge uncertainty? Yeah, so I see what you're driving at. I, I wonder whether there is really a separate problem, though. So if I'm trying to decide whether I should buy... By flooding, insurance against flooding. And, you know, I've seen all these pictures in the television lots of rain in different places, and going to hit the main time. I don't know whether it really matters to me whether there's more uncertainty about this than now, or whether I'm good at judging that or not. The only uncertainty that really occupies me is the uncertainty about the flooding. Um, I don't see that sort of this meta uncertainty really is going to contribute anything to the particular uncertainties that we face. Is it going to contribute to good management of the uncertainty? I see I see, I see, I see what you're doing. Right. If you're not judging correctly how much uncertainty there is, if you mm. have, if because you've seen all these photos yeah. on TV, you're misled into thinking that actually it's far less uncertain than it really is. Yeah. How, yeah. how can you manage that uncertainty effectively if you're actually managing? Yeah, if you're not pulling out. Maybe, maybe I'm putting into it you know, some very downstairs or very messy. Certainly when you apply for research grants to study uncertainty. <laughs> <laughs> You'd like to say we face a lot more than we have in the past. <laughs> <laughs> But I don't really know. Fair enough. Uh, I, have to, I have a question in the sense that what if the risk uh, leads to a result that has a loss so big that you probably can't take it into consideration because the model is totally in your face? Right. So the, oh, because there's, there's nothing if that. Yeah, so that's likely sort of uh, situations that consequences that are so bad that, um, I mean, yeah, so. The, the, the universe sort of explodes, right? Do you take that into account? I guess not. I, and, I, I, and, and I don't have any non-arbitrary basis for saying that, other than the thought that you've already expressed, which is that there are some consequences that seem so dreadful that uh, we, can't, we can't hedge against them in any kind of way. Right? I mean, there's no way of softening the blow of the explosion of the universe by... Exactly. But then it becomes very arbitrary where to throw the line into, yeah. okay, this is okay, right. this is irreversible. Yeah. 
That's right. And, and uh, it may be that the... So I think that the thought is here, that I'm not saying that it's not, the thought is here is, is that if that's going to happen, you know, everything's over already. So there's, you know, to, to, act as a, to act as a kind of rational, calculating, bentonite agent, we have to sort of wrap our world in a little bit of a bubble. It's the bubble within which it makes any sense in which our life has any meaning whatsoever. But if it's all going to blow up tomorrow, then not anything that we do is without meaning. So. Yeah. In the front. Thank you. Um, partly related to what the lady just was saying just a moment ago, and, it's, um, and these things about managing the uncertainty. I'm working in IT assurance and dealing with project managers and all of these good things. And what's interesting to me is... Um, how these two things are relating together there because people are trying to be very certain about things and they go about their projects in a, in a way that entails them specifying everything to great detail but that actually increases their risk because they're trying to manage out uncertainty right. and that uncertainty inherently exists yeah. and what you have on the slide that's still on the screen there is a reasonable approximation to uh, what people know today as agile methods or agile approaches so that you're taking more flexible things you're only defining what you can define right. and you're keeping your options open and managing your decisions forward so I kind of I wonder if, 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 if there's some practical applications to come from this well there's also something to be learned from how people are approaching yeah. those kind of problems and the misunderstanding in my view of yeah. risk and risk management and so forth right no I agree with you. actually I think embedded in a lot of pra good practices are already sort of principles like this that are not necessarily sort of theorized in any kind of way but people who work in that in that field, you know, when I build bridges, you know, you have some sort of sense of what robustness means for bridge building, and they will build that into the decisions that they make without it. So, so I, I think there's a, probably a lot to be learned from uh, studying you know, uh, the ways in which modeling and decision making are made in particular fields, and to see what kinds of uh, techniques are used for increasing flexibility, for improving robustness, and so on. Um, I think, yeah, so that, I mean, I think that's the main point, is, is that I don't, that sort of thing is not, uh, the, the complaint that I have really is with the abstract theory that sort of informs these things. And the abstract theory doesn't have any explicit allowance for these things. So when people make use of them, they do so on a kind of ad hoc basis, I think. They have a sort of sense, well, this, this makes things a bit more flexible, so I'll just build in that ability without having a, a sort of... Uh, principled way of balancing that out against other considerations. Thanks for a great talk. Um, I'm an engineer, just to confess. Right. Why? Bridge builder. Yeah. Um, <laughs> exactly. uh, I want to offer up a, a different perspective on the um, perspective of the gentleman that Simon gave. I was just wondering what you thought about the role of daily routine in managing uncertainty. I know I've already given away the question, so you can think about your answer while mm -hmm. explaining some examples. Uh, so Dave's car, obviously used to stay in bed quite often. Mm. Um, say Thomas Carlyle talked about the daily terror of anything changing his, his routine, so he stayed in Chelsea for six years. And uh, then you had Von Neumann, who you know, used to hold uh, numerous student rallies and show off his, uh, his counting infinite series and everything. I was just wondering, the role of routine mm. in using less glucose for particular neural pathways, does that help you 
think about the uncertainty in your life in the greatest way? No, I think so. I, I see the role of routine and habit and so on as being slightly different. I mean, so and it's mainly about saving on decision costs. So instead of doing things the way that these models sort of imply, which is that every time you make a decision, you've got to line up all your alternatives, work out you know, which is based on education. The, the way of doing it through routine is to sort of settle on one that's working well, and then now and then compare it against some alternative that pops up. So you're really making these dyadic choices from time to time, which is much less costly in decision terms than exhaustively listing all the alternatives. Would you recommend that? Yeah, it's a good, I mean, as soon as, if, if you've got a finite, if there's any sort of limitations on your decision-making resources, which is, of course, the normal situation, then I think that makes a lot of sense. But it won't help you, I don't think it'll help you manage the kinds of uncertainty that I'm worried about. And, and indeed, I think it I shuts you down. It gives you more time to think about the kind of pattern, kind of black swan. I see. If you, if you use all the sort of free glucose as it were, you've got now to think about, well, yeah, think about all sorts of things, think about poetry and love and so on, that would also be good. Um, <coughs> the, the habits, I think habit is the sort of, has its dangers, and, some, and the dangers are really that, that despite the fact that it frees up decision-making time, people are not going to then spend it on you know, thinking about black swan events or anything like that. They're going to sensibly spend it on the other things that they enjoy doing in life. Um, At least that's a risk. The, the risk is, the, or the, <laughs> the, the uncertainty that you face is not knowing you know, what, the, what the bounds of good performance for your routines are. So you know, most of your routines, are, they're functioning very well most of the time. That's why they're routines. You don't call them into question. If you're lucky, you get a very sharp signal from the environment telling you routine is out of its normal environment, think again, and then you get a chance to go into deliberative mode and, and do an explicit comparison. If you're unlucky, events unfold too quickly for you to get out of routine mode, and then you just sleepwalk your way over the cliff, which is, of course, what sometimes routine causes people to do. So they're so wedded to the side. I, I mean, I see your point, but I'm not sure it's... it's I don't think it it's helps that much in, for this problem. I think, in general, it's a good thing to use routine. search for certainty about things like numbers of immigrants um, beyond the point where it's in fact sensible. Uh, I, I don't know which side of the thing, whether you were thinking there was some kind of barrier to 
to gathering those kinds of statistics or whether, they were, they, or the, whether the thing that we should be worried about here is this pressure to know about stuff. I think, I think I'm saying that it seems like something that it would be very diff, difficult to know. Yeah. And, it seemed, and it seemed ridiculous, but yeah. I think it would be better. Yeah, so that would be my that would be my reading of that as well. So I, I think here we'll, there's also, of course, gathering information has costs, and in some cases the costs are not just you know the, the matter of paying people to go and fill in the forms and so on, but the kind of invasion of people's privacy that has to occur in order to gather that information, the, the unintended effects of driving people into greater secrecy because they know somebody's asking questions and so on. So there's lots and lots of downsides to seeking information of this kind, then I think you just have a sort of second-order decision problem. You have to say, I can spend some time gathering this information, has some benefits, has some costs. You know, I could not. I could spend that time doing something else. And you weigh it up. Uh, uh, one of the things that you have to take into account as a politician is just the fact that you'll get, you know, flamed by Jeremy Maxman for not knowing stuff. But it looks like you ought to know, but what he should have said is, don't be ridiculous, Jeremy. Why on earth would I look for that kind of information? Notice what the impact would be on people's lives if I if I did do so, instead of being defensive. Yeah. Yeah, you, uh, you haven't talked very much about the human factor, the fact that people don't always act in a rational way. Ah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously economic forecasting yeah. has gone terribly wrong. Yeah. Uh, I don't know whether I have very much interesting to say about it. I mean, so I, I suppose the premise of this talk was, look, I, I think lots of things go wrong because people are irrational. Maybe some things go right because people are irrational. Sometimes there is sort of useful irrationality too. But I rather wanted to ask the question, you know, if we were really trying to do this rationally, and that is, by, by that I understand in this context, not just be consistent, but also, you know, do the best that we can with what we have. You know, what would we go about doing? And, well, there's a set of answers that we've been given historically to that question. And then, yeah, so then there are other things that need to be said because that way of doing things doesn't work. So all of that is inside this kind of bubble, as you you pointed out, of just assuming that what we're trying to do is be rational. Now, when we actually make decisions, we, of course, have to take into account that the people that we work with, including ourselves, are not rational. And you need to manage against that, too. So... I mean, the rational thing for me would be not to have the extra slice of chocolate cake when I get home tonight, because it's not good for me. But, you know, when I walk past the fridge... and you know, So I have to manage that too, and that's part of sort of managing myself. Uh, and there's some uncertainties there too. But I, th- I don't think it's... I, I don't think it changes the principles of what we're... It's an extra complication. Um, it's an extra complication and not... It doesn't change the game because I think we are capable of being rational. Um, we're capable of deliberating about what we should do and, and sort of set in place safeguards to make sure that we do do what we think, lock the fridge, things like that. Um, I think there are all kinds of prior assumptions in saying the rational thing would be not to have the chocolate. Cake. Ah, yeah. Because there are all sorts of ways in which that's the rational decision for me, but not for you. Uh, oh, yeah, I'm not saying it's, what's rational for you and me is the same thing. I mean, so... If we're doing some, something together, then we have to agree on what our collective... But, but, of course, that's not going to be the same thing. No, I just mean in, in a relatively banal sense that I've thought about this. I think the long-term consequences of me when I think about diabetes and obesity and all the other problems that are associated is just 
you know, all things considered, it would be better if I didn't eat more chocolate cake. That's just the way I, I'm thinking about it when I'm not being clouded by, you know, this direct perception and sort of good-smelling stuff and so on. Um, so I don't think there's really a problem about the notion of rationality that's involved there. It's just, you know, I, I can think about the health effects and then sometimes I'm overwhelmed by the temptation. But it's also, in, in, terms of, in terms of predicting the future about the, the economic situation, yeah. the world, you know, the, yeah. generally, we have, we have to assume that human beings will do things in their own interests and things that are rational. Yeah. But they don't. They often behave... In their and, and we do need... And we do... I agree. I, I'm, I'm just going to agree with you. We do have to take that into... It, it would... Rationality requires us to take into account the fact that other people, including ourselves, are irrational sometimes. But we can do that. I don't think it's... It's just one more thing that we've got to take into account. It makes things more complicated, but... but I think we can do it. Seems the point about the chocolate um, race. <laughs> um, I, I'm seeing you, but I think there was someone in the back who, uh, with the striped shirt. You had your hand up for a while. Do you still have a question? Yeah, you with the glasses? No, it's not striped. It's Do you still have a question or not? Oh, okay. Right, then we... I just wanted to ask, because you said earlier on in the lecture you were going to talk about why Pascal's way... Ah, no, I was going to ask you why Pascal. <laughs> <laughs> to okay. why that doesn't work. Oh, okay. For, 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 for many of the reasons that we... So if we uh, go back to these. So uh, the problem isn't about probabilities. Pascal shows that it doesn't really matter how probable it is. I think one of the things is that we don't know... We don't know what the states, possible states are because uh, once you think about it, of course, Pascal just assumed that the problem was either the Christian God exists or doesn't exist. Right? But I, why stop there? I mean, it seems to me there are a whole range of possible gods that might exist or you know, might not exist. And for each of those, there'll be a very complicated balancing of kind of what happens if the true God is this one and I believe in the other one. And presumably, <laughs> life is going to be very, very bad, maybe even worse than being an atheist. Um, so so, so that's, a, that's a big problem. And, so the, the, and you might just think, well, look, this, in the end, there's just a kind of symmetry on these things where every, you know, every god that will do me good, if I believe in him or her, there'll be, you know, there'll be the, the other god who will do me great harm if I don't believe in her. Um, uh, there's a, a, an objection which I think is a little bit tangential to this, that, but nonetheless is important, is that belief is not really an action in the same kind of way that other actions are. I mean, you can go through the motions of belief, but it's very unlikely that that would satisfy God. Um, at, at least, you know, I mean, it depends on your conception of the, the God. Um, and then there's the problem of assigning value to outcomes. I mean, there's a little bit of a kind of play on finite and infinite and so on in the, in the, um, in the Pascal's wager, but and I want, you know, how does he know? Yeah. You know, how does he know what the consequence is? Um, you know, maybe he's been reading too much Dante. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, how does Dante know? It's this really a sort of radical ignorance about this. 
It is a bit, yeah. No, no, that is the argument. That is the argument, is go with the biggest bully. When, when, in fact, we can't even begin to conceive just how much bullying is possible because our finite minds can't grasp that. So it's, it's a very, I think it's a very, very slippery argument. But I, I also think it ties in with what the woman over there was saying earlier on about how much you know about your options, just when you say, which God could it be? Because in that world, there might have been less perceived uncertainty because it would have been more of an either or, or okay, maybe yeah. Protestant or Catholic God. But less than you wouldn't necessarily live in a world whereby you had the knowledge of, um, like, the God of Islam, the God of yeah. Hinduism, the God of these things. So I think we have a bigger perceived uncertainty now because of globalization. I see. That's an interesting point about, so, so I see what you see about the connection with greater uncertainty. So th- there is a sense in which greater awareness of alternatives creates more uncertainty. There's nothing like sort of not knowing your options to make life simple. Okay, I think we'll take one last question. Um, (laughs) Randomise. I'll go to the back again. Yeah, you. Um, Yeah, I was wondering, um, perhaps it is not the uncertainty that has been increasing over time, but rather the risks that are involved, for example, due to increased interdependence in the room. Uh-huh. Um, and should therefore um, not perhaps our focus be more on managing the risks rather than yield to Yeah. I, I definitely want to say no. I mean, I, I, I don't, of course, I was, didn't want to say we should take our mind eye off the risks. And there, or although I poured scorn on the idea that we should only pay attention to the things that we know, the problems that we know we can solve. I think that was too quick. There is a, something to be said for for dealing with the things that we know we can deal with and not getting too hung up about the stuff that we, we're we not sure whether we can deal with. But I, 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 would, I want to resist your, your last thing. It's, it's true that there are increased risks that come from interdependency, but I'm not sure that it fundamentally changes... Um, uh, the way in which we should, in the way in which we should manage the uncertainties aside from that, because you know, with these complexities, with with the increase in, in risks that are associated with complexity, there are also uncertainties that are. You know, take technological development, for instance. I think we might say, well, we, we can be pretty sure that you know all this creativity and interaction and, in, and, and complexity and so on is is creating more. You know, it's creating the conditions under which we might expect. More unanticipatable technological developments. So we can anticipate more of the unanticipatable in some weird sense, right? Um, and we should be—that should matter, I think, because it, it, these, each of these presents the opportunities for radically reshaping the kind of world we find ourselves in. So, you know, don't heavily commit yourself to certain kinds of technologies in a way that might have made sense thousand years ago because you could be pretty sure there wasn't going to be a wheel discovered next, you know. But I, I find it very difficult to get any grasp on these questions about how much uncertainty, how much risk, because I'm not sure what metric we can appeal to in thinking about these things. Okay, with that, we do know one thing, I mean, that we are out of time, so thanks very much for your interesting questions and thanks to Richard for the